Hey everyone, welcome to the Atlas Podcast, episode 12. My name is Emma Loggins, editor-in-chief at fanbolt.com. My name is Shekai Mickelson. I'm the creative director of Atlanta Movie Tours. In episode 12, actually, you just said that. I'm like, wow, it's starting to sound almost grown up here. (laughs) We're like a (laughs) preteen. Um, well, before we dive into things, we want to take a moment to uh, just say with the, the tragedy that happened in Orlando over the weekend that our hearts and our prayers go out to um, all the victims and their family and friends and really everyone in Orlando. Um, it's such a terrible tragedy, and I think it's it's important that we, we take a little moment to, to remember uh, everyone down there. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, when, when the, the whole thing happened on the news, I saw the headline. I was like, oh, another shooting. And then I didn't, which is sad that that was my reaction to it. Oh, another one. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really hit me hard until I actually, I didn't really understand what happened until obviously I read the whole thing. And then just, you know, talk about being punched in the stomach. It's a, it's a scary time. But yeah, to, to your point, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, heavy heart and, I don't know, positive vibes thrown at everybody that's surviving and, and dealing with that down there. I actually, I get CNN alerts on my phone whenever, you know, something, there's a major news story. And I woke up Sunday morning with, uh, you know, a dozen or so alerts on my phone. And um, I was at a, a television festival over the weekend in Austin, and um, they held a, a lovely vigil um, for the for the victims and for Orlando um, in Austin on Sunday night. Uh, but they also took a, a moment in the festival to to address it and have a moment of silence. And it was um, it's really hard to, to to talk about that kind of thing when you're when you're dealing with so much kind of fun festival activities right. around and then to have that. Um, and it's definitely something you want to address. And it's uh, it's it's something that, that people need to talk about. So, you know, it is kind of a weird thing. It, like, I, I don't know if you did this at all, but I put myself in a situation just imagining like, hey, I've just gone out with my friends having a great time somewhere. And then something like that happens. It just seems like such a thing that would never be. So I, I would imagine there'd be a little bit, at least for me, if I was in the middle of a festival with all kinds of people, that would probably whisper at the back of my head. But uh I, but uh, that all being said, it sounds like it was a pretty good festival. It was. It was. Um, we we flew in, and I say we, me, Fambolt, <laughs> flew in. <laughs> the entire organization. The entire organization. Took of your private plane. I wish. Um, we flew in on Thursday, and uh, then of course left uh, later in the day on Sunday. Um, but it was it was great. We had the the tenth reunion of the West Wing. It's been ten years since the show wrapped, which is kind of crazy to oh think about. Goodness, yeah. Um, I remember watching it like I think I was among the group that they all assumed must have been in kindergarten when it originally aired because um, I Sorkin Aaron Sorkin the series creator kept referencing that how many young people um, were in the audience for it and I was like no I actually watched it when it was on and it's uh, I had I had the the DVD boxes back in the day and marathon through it and I, I love that show I, I think it's um, especially with the way our our political landscape looks now it's I don't know. It reminds me of a, I mean, obviously it's fictional, but, but it reminds me right. of such a happier political time. Oh my gosh, um, I know. I know. But uh, yeah, I did kind of want to kind of graze over everything I did because we're going to be having some content from it, um, of course, on this podcast and uh, next week's podcast. Um, but uh, 
I have an exclusive interview with Powers and Jessica Jones creator, Brian Michael Bendis, and we're going to have that on the show next week. Uh, that was a really incredible interview, and I definitely recommend you guys checking that out. It was, uh, I think it's one of the best interviews I've ever done. I was, I was thrilled with it. Wow, that's that's an ultimate tease. You're like, I, know. I don't mean to brag, but my best work ever. Best Tune work in ever. next week. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and that's one of the things uh, when you're when you're interviewing someone, and when you finish, if the your interviewee says, or the person you're interviewing says, you know, those were really good questions. You're just like, yes, right? I did, I I did this. I rocked this. Um, so that was. Um, really with all the interviews I did this weekend, I, I interviewed him and of course, um, uh, Josh Molina and Richard Smith from West Wing and then, um, series creator and one of the stars from Preacher, which we'll have on a, a later episode as well. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of really good stuff and kind of circling back to the, to the West Wing reunion, uh, before we hop into an interview, I wanted to, to mention a couple of things that they said in the, the panel that I thought was really fascinating. Um, Aaron Sorkin said that he was never satisfied with any episode that they did. And he went on to say that if you are perfectly satisfied with your work, then you're not trying hard enough. I thought that was kind of... That's uh, that's it's well said. It It is well said. If you get get, uh, comfortable with with status quo, you're... You know, it, your work is not doing the right thing. So that's that's powerful from that dude. Too bad he's such a hack and has to learn how to write again. <laughs> yeah, he's such a bad writer. I mean, yeah, he no, just <laughs> just can't get it together. Um, I have to say, um, I think he is the the king of all writing in my mind. With Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, Gilmore Girls creator, being the queen of all writing in my mind. If the two of them ever get together. Huh. It's going to blow my mind. Um, <laughs> but another interesting thing that Sorkin said, um, he talked about how he thought the pilot especially was among one of the weaker episodes, which, again, you know, it won awards and it's probably remembered as one of the greatest pilots ever. Right. Um, but he also mentioned that it didn't the series almost didn't get made when he typed fate out on the uh the pilot script when he was originally writing it, he said that it was not even a few minutes later that the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal came out. And oh, wow. between between that happening and then there was a change of management at NBC, uh, they, it, things just didn't look well. And then when they actually tested the pilot, the pilot didn't test well. Um, so Warner Brothers had kind of an interesting solution for it. They developed four new demographics, um, those four being households, that have income greater than 75,000 households with one or more college grads households subscribed to the New York times and households with internet access. Because of course you're in the late nineties there. That's something that, you know, not everyone had. Right. And they said that more than half of their ad buys were actually for dot coms. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. That makes that's uh, see sometimes uh, things that don't seem like they took a lot of planning actually took, a lot of planning. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. So, yeah, he was, and I didn't realize that he was, I guess it was kind of on the, the earlier end of my TV nerdum, um, but he was <laughs> only actually involved for, for four, the first four seasons of the series. And when he made the decision to leave after the fourth season, 
he got a call from Larry David, of course, famous for for Seinfeld, um, and well, Curb Your Enthusiasm, of course, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, of course, calls him and tells him not to watch seasons five through seven because if he does and they're great, he'll be mad that you know they're great without him, and if they're bad, he'll be mad that they've ruined you know what he created. So that was David's advice to him, uh, Larry, Larry David's advice to not to not watch and. Um, Sorkin didn't really put a whole lot of weight in that and was like, well, I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to check it out anyways. And then he watched 20 seconds or so of season five and said he felt like he was watching someone make out with his wife and he just couldn't do it. (laughs) Um, So he didn't watch any of the the rest of the series and has no idea how the series ends still to this day. Wow. Well, it's interesting that hasn't circled back uh, at this point now that it's, you know, now that it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say getting dusty, but now that it's, you know, kind of for the archival shelves you know yeah definitely Mm. definitely so so only over half was he involved that's pretty intense it is it is it kind of i I haven't watched the series and probably it's probably been about eight years since i've seen all of it so i kind of want to go back and and watch the first four and then kind of be able to more you know, compare them to the later seasons a bit more critically than I did the first time around. Just yeah. to just see if you can see. feel a difference. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, but aside from that panel, I also got to speak to uh, two of the beloved cast members. Um, and the first one, I think we're going to talk about Josh Molina. Um, I love his character. <laughs> I absolutely love his character. Um, so Will Bailey is who he played on the West Wing, if you if you don't remember or I'm not sure of his, his name. Uh, I talked with him a little bit about a number of things, and I, I played the audio for Ja'Kai, and Ja'Kai, Ja'Kai really liked this one part, so <laughs> we're going to listen to <laughs> well, this one part. Yeah, so, and, uh, so yeah, well, so, yeah, well, let's, uh, let's listen to that, why don't we? Um, so having worked, of course, with your, your work on Scandal and then with West Wing, what has it been like for you being on two shows that evolve so are, revolve so heavily around the world of politics? It's fun for me. It, it, in a sense, it cuts both ways, which is that, uh, you know, in the not to complain, because I'm delighted to have any job, any time, and West Wing and Scandal are certainly two of the highlights of my career and have been incredible long-term jobs where I enjoy the material and the other people and everything about them is pretty dandy. Um, but so the only negative thing would be is that uh, I got into acting thinking, you know, one day I'll be a cowboy, the next day I'll be an astronaut, maybe I'll be a fireman. <laughs> it seems that I'm destined to play smart people in suits. Um, and I'd rather have that than no niche. Right, right. Um, it's a good niche. Yes, have. but I will say also one of the thrills of being in both shows is that they're both very dialogue-heavy, even though they're clearly tonally very different. They're both very dialogue-heavy, and uh, I like delivering dense dialogue quickly. <laughs> I think you're it's right. Well. You're kind to say. <laughs> so it, it, the reason why I brought that up is just because I think it's interesting, because here's, here's an actor who's clearly made it. He's on two hit shows. My wife, Mandy, is a huge fan of Scandal. So when she saw the photo of you, Josh Molina, on the Facebook, she was like, oh, my gosh, it's the guy from Scandal. So you, you're now that much cooler, my wife's eyes. So, so, so good on you. <laughs> um, yes. but, but, but again, he, he, here's an actor that's made it. 
Um, and now it's always interesting to me that when people make it to a certain threshold and then they, the view from where they made it to is not what they anticipated, you know? Um, and of course you listen to the clip. He's super quick to disclaim the fact that like, oh, well, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining because some people would take it. You're lucky to be an actor, which is totally true. But I personally just appreciated his honesty of like, I had a vision of what this was going to look like. And it's something different. And it looks, turns out that I'm a guy that wears a suit and a tie in shows. So, right. I, you know, I think, I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, vulnerability there in, in admitting something like that. So for whatever reason, I keyed in on that. I just thought it was an interesting, um, idea that just because you made it as an actor doesn't mean you're necessarily living the version of it you dreamed about. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what was kind of fun um, during the panel and even during during the actual interview that I did with him, um, the cast and him have such a, a playful relationship. They would always try to cut him off during the panel. Um, and it was kind of like a, a playful hate <laughs> kind of right. thing. Um, but uh, of course, they, they really love him, but they have kind of a playful relationship with him. And even I think in the audio interview, you, you hear uh, Dulé Hill walk by and say, don't listen to anything this guy says. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so it's. I, I feel like that's always a sign of true friendship. Yeah. Seriously, because like well, my best friends are the people I am the rudest to. If I am super cordial and very polite to you the entire time, and I say nothing sarcastic, uh oh, <laughs> you know. Exactly. But, but that's kind of true for most people, I think. Exactly, I agree. Um, yeah, it was it was a great interview. I wish we could, you know, it was a little bit noisy. We were in a, a restaurant when we were doing the recording, and Melina really likes to hit the table, um, you know, like <laughs> while he's while he's talking and, and tap his fingers and all of this stuff. And uh, so the rest of that interview will be just transcribed and up on Fanbolt to read next week. Um, had had a really great conversation with him too about how he think he thought that you know his character would prep the president for a debate with. Donald Trump. I thought that was a really fun question. Yeah. Um, and then just kind of talking about how he thinks the West Wing would would be today if it was a if it was currently airing and how it would affect or if it would affect the the current political landscape. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good interview. Definitely definitely check it out. I thought so too. And uh, he and uh, his business partner were talking about the, uh, the the podcast that they had going and, yes. and you know some of the challenges and stuff they ran into. Which uh, hey, you know, uh, frankly, I can relate to that a little bit as I stand I here in a closet talking to you. Oh, by the way, I am back <laughs> in the closet. Well, full that's circle, full back circle in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> just me and. Me and Tom Cruise here in the closet. Oh, that was another I, South Park reference. Sorry, <laughs> I would say something, but I won't. <laughs> in reference to Tom Cruise, not uh, reference okay, to you. Okay, understood. All right, <laughs> but um, I won't make I won't make that joke. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's uh, that com- that part of the conversation was really interesting too. He's doing a podcast now where they're doing episode recaps. Uh, it's called The West Wing Weekly, and you can find that, of course, on iTunes. And they're actually going to have the full panel discussion that took place at um, ATX Festival up on their podcast this week. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, you should also be able to um, look up the West Wing Weekly and hear the, the full festival panel in its entirety if you are interested. Um, but yeah, moving on, I also talked to um, Richard Smith, and he's uh, such a... I mean, everyone knows his face. He's been in everything, actor, director, producer, um, Broadway. He's he's done a little bit of everything. And 
Um, it was a little surreal for me when I sat down at the table with him because I've, I've heard he's an actor's actor. And so I was like, all right, this is going to be serious. This is going to be an intense. And you can kind of hear it as we, as we get going in the interview, he kind of loosens up a little bit and we start talking about kind of his craft and, and diving a little bit deeper into that. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a really good interview as well. <laughs> nice. I mean, not your best work. Your best work is next week. That's Bendis. That's, that's, that's Bendis. That's, yes. Bendis. that's next week. <laughs> Jessica Jones powers. But this guy who's also done other things. Um, oh my gosh, I totally forgot he was in Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, he was. First day he of was. camp. That's, that's super fun. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's check out your interview, why don't we? Let's do it. Is this kind of surreal being back and doing interviews like surrounded no, no, it's not surreal. Actually, it's real. It's cool. It's cool. Um, uh, surreal moments are are very different than this. You know, um, winning an Emmy was a surreal moment. Uh, you know, where you're not in your body. Right. But I'm very much uh, feel like I'm here, enjoying it, enjoying reflecting on our years together, enjoying being in the company of people I love. Um, so no, it's very real and in a good way. I was such a huge fan of the show, so being here for this was oh good, so so exciting, I'm so glad. exciting. Um, so so many questions for you. Um, what kind of now looking back on the series really impresses you about what all you guys were able to accomplish and what all you did? What kind of stands the test of time for you? Um, I think we've expressed it all day, really. It's just, it's, it's, uh, I call it a perfect storm of very good things ha- coming together. You know, Aaron spoke today at the panel about, about the luck involved and even the, sh- the show even getting a green light in right. the first place. It wasn't going to happen, and then it happened. Then it didn't test well, and then blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was also a perfect storm of, of, of assembling this ensemble and this cast. Um, because it could have easily been much more difficult and, and maybe not as great right. if there was, uh, if the egos had gotten out of hand, if somebody who was used to being treated as a star uh, was dominating the set every day, if right. people had to accommodate unpleasantness, which happens on a lot of sets. Um, everyone came ready to play ball. And, um, and, and then when Martin Sheen joined, uh, he comes. He brings so much love um, that even if there was that ego thing, that's, you, you just would feel embarrassed to do that in front of Martin because there's none of that. And and uh, between Martin and John Spencer and Brad and and um, and Allison, who's so who's such a great great person, and and the support supporting cast like you saw Melissa Fitzgerald today such a lovely and, and uh, beautiful spirit and Janelle and everybody we all we were interested in is in doing the work and solving problems and um, especially that first year and uh, and that was the gift that's the gift and people don't realize that and you see it in basketball you see it with the Golden State Warriors right now it's not about Steph Curry scoring 80 points it's about who's got the open shot um, how can we get the easiest basket? How do we play team defense? How do we switch? Um, and that's what an ensemble does. That's what a team does. They play together and they set each other up. And we set each other up for stories and for moments. And, uh, and it doesn't happen all the time. Right. You, know? you see it on Broadway now in Hamilton. 
which was inspired apparently uh, as Lynn uh, Manuel Miranda told me backstage by the West Wing which flipped me out he was a West Wing freak and what he created is, a, is a, an incredible ensemble that's going to change the course of theater history in my opinion um, and I think he captured not only the, uh, the, the, the political um, storytelling uh, w- that was inspired that, that inspired him from the West Wing but the nature of ensemble Right. And the nature of giving everyone a thing uh, uh, to to do and right. that that's that's that comes off the spine of the point of your storytelling, and um, it's very very rare. It's very very rare, and so we 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 are celebrating that as much as anything. Definitely. How do you think if West Wing was currently on today, how it would kind of affect the uh, the political landscape of kind of everything we see going on right? Um, I don't know. I don't know if anyone would be paying attention. I think, uh, 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 I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't have an answer to that question. At the time of the West Wing, I thought, I, I used to deny our effect on the political landscape because Bush actually won the second, ele- won re-election, he won that election. I, I still to this day think he didn't win the first one. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah, he actually won by a wide margin in the second time around. So I thought, we're having the opposite effect of what people think we have. Right, right. You know, uh, this liberal administration is affecting America the other way, you know. And then in 08, uh, going around, I was very involved in the campaign. I campaigned for Joe Biden in those days. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, very clearly, the, uh, a generation had been... Had, had come out of watching the West Wing that got inspired to get into politics and was very much a part of the foot soldiers of the Obama army that directly affected the election because that foot soldier army is what probably won him the caucus states. And it's the caucus states that won him the primary cycle and what got him nominated to be president. So that's when I went, wow, we actually have a direct effect on the course of history, if you're willing to accept that thesis. Um, But if it came on today, I think we're too busy. I think it's way too noisy. And one of the great things about the old days of television 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, was that it was water cooler television. And people would communally watch the same hour. and people used to tell us all the time, we turn off the phones, we put the kids to bed, and that one hour is uninterrupted. And then the next day at the water cooler, they all talk about it. As they did about The Sopranos after Sunday nights, you know. For us, it was after Wednesday nights. Um, and you don't have that communal experience. You have Twitter, but it's not quite the same thing as talking about it person to person and being excited about it and discussing issues and not just pontificating on Twitter and spitting out what your opinion is. Right. It's, it's, ac- it's actually creating dialogue. And I don't think that can happen now because no one watches it at the same time. Right. Plus, people won't notice it until seven years later. You know what I mean? Because right. there's too much noise. It's too noisy out there right now. Right, right. Uh, well, my best friend is getting her PhD in political science, and I know that they, they reference West Wing constantly in their coursework. What do you think about that? Is that kind of being used as a... Uh, as a resource for 
in school for people I, I get that a lot. I get that on Twitter. People send me a, a note saying, you know, you inspired my high school, you know, class and and then people come up to me in Washington D.C. saying, you know, I, I went to I went to uh, uh, is it Georgetown? That's the poli sci place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because of you, and I'm working, and, and you know, I'm working on the staff of the senator's office because he, because of the West Wing and so on. <clears throat> and that's um, that's kind of great. And the fact that you know uh, kids are 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 being shown episodes of the West Wing in high school for social studies. It is awesome. You know, I, I wish I had that in high school to kind of help me understand how, how government works. And, you know, senators and, and people on the Hill would say, if I tried to give a one-hour speech on the census, I would completely fail to hold people's attention for more than 30 seconds. And you guys did a whole episode and managed to make it entertaining and helped me to understand what a census is more than I understood before. You know, that's pretty remarkable. So, um, uh, oh, that's very cool. Cool. Um, You've had such an expansive and and awesome career with all of the roles that you've had. How would you say that Toby kind of compares in the grand scheme of all of the roles that you've had? Um, Probably the, the, uh, the longest role I've ever played. So I got to know him more deeply than most. It's almost like when you do a play, um, you live, breathe, and, and everything else with right. that character uh, 24-7 for six months or three or four months or whatever. And that gets very deep in your blood. But when you do a TV character for seven years, it's a long time. Um, it becomes a seminal you know, era in your, in your life. Um, so, so Toby's up there. Of course. I, I don't say he's my favorite character because there's a character that Jason Kadams wrote before he became a big deal on a show called Relativity, which was a kind of Willie Loman type character. Um, and, uh, and there was something very touching and very hard for me to play for him because he, he was a really not a smart man, but yet very touching to me. You know, and he remains kind of in that special place as my favorite character because he, he broke my heart you know Toby uh, uh, Toby was complicated and difficult and also heart-wrenching at times um, and so much fun at times um, and was a much more well-rounded experience because he lasted a much longer time so he's, he'd probably be remembered for him more than anything else so obviously a big deal right right yeah was there a specific moment, whether it may be scene or episode that you remember, where you were like, you felt like Toby really clicked for you? Like the first initial, yeah. like, I've got it now. Like, yeah, one is a, is a moment <clears throat> in the pilot in which uh, uh, I um, was supposed to get upset at Mary Marsh, the Christian right woman, because that New York sense of humor line. Um, and I remember we were rehearsing it, and... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to blow up. It's a scene that I auditioned for, and uh, with, and <clears throat> I remember saying to Tommy and Aaron, you know, I don't understand why I'm blowing up at this, at this woman. And Tommy goes, "It's the Judah button. It's the Judah button. You just like so highly sensitized to any any anti-Semitic." And I go, "No, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. He's been around the world. I mean, he's, you know, he experienced anti-Semitism everywhere. He, he doesn't. No, she's got to want something." 
she's gonna want something in this scene because because of our mess up. And Aaron wrote a line, which is, "Let's deal." Okay, let's deal. And Toby goes, "I'm sorry." This does double take. I'm sorry. Uh, what do we get? And that's when I start doing a slow burn and realize that she's just crossed the line. And that's what made Toby step, in my mind, transcend just being emotional about and sensitive about anti-Semitic stuff, but being a real political operative, understanding his world, and knowing the exact moment that someone has crossed the line and letting him have it. <clears throat> that was one moment. The other moment was in uh, In Excelsis Deo, which has been the first season. And um, it's the scene under the bridge when I'm fi- I found you know, the, 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 the homeless vet who had died on the bench. And I'm looking for his brother to, get, to tell him about his, about his brother dying. And I come up with the idea of having a, 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 a military full honors funeral. But before that happened, yeah, it's that moment. And he says, Toby says, because the guy's slow and he can't understand what I'm saying. And I get frustrated and I say, uh, I'm a, you know, look, I'm, I, I'm an influential and, and I'm a very powerful man, he says. And I remember feeling, being embarrassed to have to say that out loud, the actor, and then realizing, no, it's Toby that's embarrassed. Toby is mortified at having to explain that he can do something because he works in the White House. And that moment, I did the same thing on every single take, which is I put my head in my hand and and swallowed the words, I'm a very, I'm a very powerful man. And, and that, to me, defined who he was as someone who was embarrassed by his, his power and, and was very careful how he was going to utilize that. And while he was stepping over the line in this particular, as far as the rules go, in order to create, the, uh, uh, give this uh, homeless vet a, a, a full-honored funeral at Arlington, that's something he had to do, and he was embarrassed that he was able to do it. Right. It's a complex little kind of uh, comp- compilation of of, uh, of uh, feelings, but that that was very very important in discovering who this guy really is. Kind of talking about discovery, what do you what do you feel either personally or professionally you learned about yourself while on the series? Well, you, you, one thing you learn is that you can handle pressure. Um, there was an incredible amount of pressure uh, and frustration because, as I said earlier, um, in other in other places today, uh, in the last two days, you know, Aaron. Every episode of Aaron's had the potential for brilliance. And that made me always want to reach that ceiling. And you don't always get there. And the frustration of that was a beautiful battle um, that elevated all of us and, and made us constantly work harder and harder and harder. And uh, I discovered how important that was. I had always known that, but I discovered how important it was for me to reach the potential that was handed to us on a platter. You know, um, uh, that's one thing. And, um, you know, uh, surviving the grind of 18-hour days and getting up at 4 in the morning to work out for an hour so I'd have the energy to do it again the next day 
I did not know I had that discipline. I did not know I had the discipline to learn a seven-page scene in three hours to shoot that day or the next day. Or um, uh, I didn't know that I was that capable of, of realizing that potential. So, uh, bad news, Richard Schiff. Aaron Sorkin was not impressed at all. <laughs> you know what? Kind of on that note, it, it's funny because during the panel, everyone, you know, it's it's bestowing so much praise upon Sorkin and the brilliance of his writing. Right. And um, Sorkin replied, and I thought this was a, a beautiful quote. I don't write things that are meant to be read. I write things that are meant to be performed. And see, that's there's a huge distinction there. There is. I think I think that's so powerful. So so two keepers from Sorkin in just this one episode. Yeah, he's. Yeah. It's funny. It's you hear him talk, and it's like everything he says is like quote worthy. You can put it on a poster. And it's just <laughs> nice. like, oh well, this is why you're Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> right, right. No, I think I think it's cool. But uh, yeah, that's a it's a great uh, nice work that interview with you and Mr. Richard Schiff. Thank you. Right, Thank you. I, I actually, you know, and he he's another guy that actually, I think, offered some insight there towards the end. Just about, oh, yeah, you know, it's not just a fun day on the set. 18 hours and the grind and go, go, go and the pressure. So, um, right. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's work. Um, yeah. And I, think, I mean, especially in a show like that, you yeah. know, where with the walk and talks, the walk and talks were so intense. I can't imagine how that kind of how much more stressful that is on an actor in comparison to just delivering dialogue in a normal scene. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I've, I've had friends like that, that have, uh, have, have been behind the scenes on shows where certain actors, you know, they couldn't do long takes and they would always, they'd always miss the mark and then they'd get mad at the ca- camera person for the focus being soft, you know? So you think of, you forget about all the stuff that had like all the, all the viewer sees is somebody like talking, but there's so much stuff going on, you know? And it takes right. it takes a real pro to be able to do it all and make it look seamless. Um, but I, I like the way uh, this episode. I've like turned into like some weird defender of actor rights. I don't know where this is coming from, but, <laughs> but for some reason, I do think it's interesting. No, I do too. I think uh, kind of, and that's one one question I always like to ask actors is the first moment they felt like they they really understood and clicked with their character because I think that offers a lot of insight into you know kind of that relationship that an actor is is crafting with his character and and getting to know that character and and really becoming that character and I think his insight on that was uh, in, in specifically to you know his work as Toby uh, it was just it was really great insight. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's it's great stuff. Well, congratulations for being a uh, a interview rock star. Thank you. So if Thank you could just you. if you could just coach people to not play the drums on the table. I know. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because Richard started doing that too, and I was smart enough that time to pick up and hold the mic. So I needed to. I wish I had done that in the Molina one, but I didn't realize like how bad it was until like I went back and I was like, oh no. Oh, well, moving on, since we've we've talked a lot about West Wing today. Um, a show that's been off the air for 10 years, but still, yeah. it's a pretty big deal show. I'm still celebrating. I'm actually wearing my Bartlett for President shirt right now and drinking, drinking out of my West Wing mug, so I'm still in <laughs> full West Wing mode. I am here without any West Wing paraphernalia, but I am wearing a robot chicken t-shirt. So, okay. same same level of sophistication, yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. Same yeah. page, same, yeah. same level. Yep. <laughs> Um, but moving over to the movie side of things for, for this week's box office report, um, The Conjuring 2, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, 
uh, debuted in the number one spot over the weekend, bringing in a total of $40.4 million. Uh, in comparison, the film's 2013 predecessor brought in $41.5 million uh, during its opening weekend. So pretty comparable. I think the studios are probably pretty happy with that. Yeah. Um, second place went to Warcraft, which um, I don't know if you looked at any of the re- reviews for that, but it, not good. I saw one trailer for that when the 3D wasn't figured out yet, and it gave me a headache, and I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, so not to be a negative Nelly, but I'm good. I didn't see it, and honestly, I didn't really... I didn't really have a desire to see it, um, yeah. but I do I do know several people that did, and they didn't have really good things to say. <laughs> what um, a surprise! <laughs> Although it would have been fun if it was actually good. Every once in a while that happens, but... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's directed by Duncan Jones, and I've interviewed him in the past. He's I love his work, um, so I'm not going to blame this on him. I don't know who I'm going to blame this on, because I didn't see it. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on society. Blame it on society. Yep. Exactly, exactly. Um, but the film took in $24.4 million, uh, domestically, which, of course, is not great. Right. Uh, but apparently, it was a huge hit in China, where it brought in $156 million in five days. Holy cow! So... All it is beloved right in China. <laughs> uh, so the film actually cost 160, uh, 160 million to make, and right now globally they're at 286.1 million. So it's considered a success because of the international success. Well, and that, in a nutshell, is why the world uh, the world results are so important. It used to be just yeah. all about North America. Now pff, that's just a that's just a little like comma in the middle of a bigger figure. It really is. It really is. Um, and even in TV, I know uh, Rain on the CW doesn't do great here um, domestically, but in Europe, it's a huge hit, uh, which is one of the reasons that they've kept it on the air, even though it's, you know, domestic ratings aren't that great. Uh, so it's it's not uncommon to see that. Ah, it's very interesting, man. Go, well, go, good for you, Warcraft. Maybe they'll make a <laughs> video game about the movie. Oh, wait. Oh, Um, Coming in third was another sequel, uh, which was Now You See Me, the second one. Um, I will say that their promotional materials were awesome. I got a magic kit, and I've been playing around like I'm a little five-year-old doing magic. Um, Haven't got the tricks to work yet, but I'm still working on it. (laughs) Um, I look forward to the YouTube video. Yeah, it's coming. Just wait. So, uh, like The Conjuring 2, it didn't outperform its predecessor, uh, but didn't get as close either. Uh, so, it opened in third with $23 million, and of course, it's 2013, the, the original film, uh, debuted with $29.3 million. So, a mm. little bit behind. And then coming in fourth was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And in fifth, still holding on, X-Men Apocalypse. So, X-Men has broken $100 million stateside. Uh, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is that doing good worldwide? Because it got pretty not so good numbers. Seems yeah, like. I I haven't seen its international um, numbers. I'll make a note to look those up for next week. But uh, it seems like it's almost completely fallen off the radar. Yeah, here it, in yeah. The States. It just curious. Yeah, it's it's only at sixty point six million, and it's only its second week. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I have a beloved spot in my heart for those characters, Uh, and again, mainly because of puppets. Because I weirdly, I wasn't even a huge fan of the cartoon show, but I liked the comic book, like when it was still kind of like a little edgier, and I really liked the live-action film. So I was kind of excited to see a resurgence happen, but I don't know. Michael Bay just gets his hands on things and makes them dumb. (laughs) 
There's a really great uh, movie trailer. If you haven't seen it, I recommend checking it out. It's like if Michael Bay directed this film, what it would be. Oh, yeah. I saw it like Have Titanic you seen it? and like the it, plates like are exploding. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. If, if our listeners haven't looked that up, look, <laughs> look it up on YouTube. Um, I don't even know what you would look up. Uh, Just if Michael Bay directed Titanic, I'm sure yeah. it will get you to it. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's hysterical. The Titanic one especially. It's just everything is an explosion. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw one of his movies that I really liked. And I'm... Nothing is coming to my mind. What was that moment. one he did? The the, uh, the the recent war movie. Oh, 13 Hours. Yeah. He, he recently did 13 Hours. It's yeah. weird. Because I never want to be the one to defend Michael Bay ever. Because what he did to my <laughs> beloved Transformers just continues yeah. to destroy my soul. But uh, apparently 13 Hours is pretty good. And I actually didn't I, hate that one with the rock and uh, guest jeans. <laughs> model. Oh, God. Guest jeans model? Yeah, I'm going back to uh, the old school when, uh, you know, uh, Marky Mark used to sell us guest jeans. What is his damn name? Mark Bleh. Wahlberg. Thank you. I was just going to see where you were going to go on that one. <laughs> just, just, uh, guest just, jeans model. Just leaving me to die. It's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, 13 Hours was actually really, really well done. Um, I got to interview the, the four of the guys that the characters were based on. Um, they did a, a press junket tour through Atlanta in January, and I was actually I forgot about I I forgot that he did that one. I I think I was surprised because I thought it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What? This is Michael Bay?" Yeah, <laughs> I saw Pearl Harbor in the theater and was like, "What is happening?" Anyways, I, I, like I don't <laughs> think it's a news flash. They're like, "Oh, Michael Bay tends to make not very good movies," so. I guess we don't really need to talk about that long. Unless people strongly disagree, feel free to write us. Yes, and leave us, us a comment. Yeah, tell us tell us why you think Michael Bay is good, and we'll tell you why we think you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's warm and inviting. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Um, but yeah, we have a, uh, for our review section of the podcast, I did see Conjuring 2 last week. And yes, I'm actually curious here about how this went. Shall we jump right into the... Uh, yeah. Um, the film brings another real case from the files of renowned demonologist Lorraine and Ed Warren to the big screen um, in what I think is probably one of the first supernatural thrillers of the year. Um, I may be wrong on that, but I, I feel like at least it's the first one that I've liked. Um, yeah. Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson star as Lorraine and Ed in The Conjuring 2, and they're headed to North London to determine if the spirit haunting a single mother and her four children is in fact legit. So there you go. So, uh, scale of one to five, five being really bored. Were you bored? I was not bored. I, I do think the middle kind of slowed down a little bit, but the, uh, the beginning and the end were pretty fast paced. So I'm going to give it a, um, two on the boredom factor. Oh, wow. Two. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's still pretty good. Are you typically yeah. a horror? F why is it? So is this horror-y filmy or it's kind of more... It's more supernatural okay. thriller to okay. me. I I don't know. I it's been so long since I've seen a good horror movie that I'm just 
usually there there's just so much kind of camp and eye, campiness to it and eye rolling and right, right. Um, it takes a lot to scare me when I see a movie in fact I haven't seen a, and, and scare is probably not exactly the right word but like a movie that kind of stays with me and will like haunt haunt me and, right. and cause me nightmares and right. and I actually really like those kind of movies that kind of leave me feeling creeped out the after good, I the good leave. ones are tough to find the ones they that are. actually stick with you like uh, yeah like having they something are. stuck between your teeth, but a scary movie instead <laughs> in your brain. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, so a two. That's pretty good. So, um, I, you you said it was a, there eye rolling an issue here. Uh, not really. Nothing that really stuck out with me. So I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a two on eye rolling. All right, we're, yeah. we're we're consistent so far. So a two and a two. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, how were the performances in it? The performances were great. Um, Vera and Patrick were fantastic. Um, the little girl, and I don't have her name in front of me, but the little girl who Madison uh, Wolf. Madison Wolf. Thank you for being. You've got my back here. Yeah, I'm trying for once <laughs> in my life. I'm gonna I'm gonna contribute. I like it. I like it. Um, so she was she was fantastic. I I don't recognize her from anything else, but. Um, I thought she did a great job, and I'm actually going to say that she, I mean, since she had to be possessed, I think that was a little bit more of a challenging role than the, the lead roles. <laughs> um, so I'm going to I'm gonna give it to her for best performance. Well, nice work, Madison Wolf. That's yeah. good. Well, you know, I was looking this up and, and kind of checking it out a little bit, and the guy who directed it, James Wan, who also directed the first one, but looking uh, looking at his, his scope of work, he's done a lot of horror films, it, with, with this weird glaring exception of uh, Fast and Furious 7. Um, but you'd think somebody who's played in this space this much is probably pretty good at making horror films. Uh, so all that being said... What do you give this thing? One to five. I'm going to give it, it's specific to this genre because I, again, it's not an Oscar winning movie. Um, right. I think for its genre, it's fantastic. Um, but I don't, in, in the grand scheme of all movies, it's, uh, I'm going to give it a, a three and a half. Three and a half. So it's yeah. another, it's another Atla La. Atla La. It's, I, I really do. If you like, this type of a genre, or this type of genre, I definitely recommend checking it out. I, I think they did a great job with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's got a good cast, and I, I do like looking at that guy's scope because he also directed the original Saw, which a lot of people think, like, I, back in the day, I thought it was going to be like torture porn, but it was actually a fun psychological thriller, right? I mean, and then, of course, it spawned yeah. off a franchise that kept going and going, but um, that first Saw, man, uh, you know, how, how bad could it be with Carrie Ells in it? That guy was in The Princess Bride. For the love of Pete. Come on. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you something. On an aside, getting uh, pretty warm in this closet. Pretty <laughs> warm in this closet. Well, weather-wise, here in Midtown, it's about to storm. So. <laughs> yeah, we just had it up here in Stockbridge. So that's that's from us. From us to you. Aw, thanks. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, so what else is happening? We've got a pretty big night coming up Thursday, which is tomorrow, if you're listening, Tomorrow. <laughs> if you're listening and it's Wednesday the 15th, then tomorrow we have a big night. Right, right. See, um, isn't that fun? Time yeah, travel. I love it. Um, yeah, we have Project Cosplay, of course, which will be 9 o'clock tomorrow at Joystick Game Bar on Edgewood. And this month's theme is Aliens, and there's going to be a little burlesque twist to it. So... Just saying, it's gonna be it's gonna be a little different than our other ones, but um, it's it's still gonna be awesome. It's gonna be fun, and who doesn't like aliens? My entire life, 
I've been dreaming of the moment when aliens and burlesque would cross over. It's happened. At an arcade. <laughs> yep. I'm very excited to be there. So I look forward to seeing you at the uh, at the big event on Thursday, which is tomorrow, if you're tomorrow. listening on Wednesday the 15th. <laughs> and on next week's podcast, we'll have my favorite interview that I think I've ever done uh, with Brian Michael Bendis. It will be an exclusive for us. And Ooh. of course, he's the creator of Powers and Jessica Jones. So pretty, pretty awesome guy. So uh, feel free to. Uh, so here's what you'll have to do. You have to buy a PlayStation and then you can binge watch Powers. And then <laughs> you can also watch Jessica Jones before next episode because uh, this guy does good damn work. So, he does. He yeah. does. It's uh, if you like gritty awesomeness that uh, especially powers, there's really they don't hold back on powers. They they do some really crazy stuff, and especially in season two. Um, <laughs> so if you've not checked it out yet and you want something that's a it's not kid friendly. So I'll just say that now. Don't watch it with your kids. Um, but it's a it's a great it's a great uh, show. It's a really great show. And of course, filmed here in Georgia. Also, uh, probably between now and later, we'll have a. I'm going to be releasing a little promotional thing we did for Atlanta Movie Tours that included some eerily similar lookalikes to both uh, Rick Grimes and Abraham on The Walking Dead. So uh, look at look out for those because these guys were at one point we were taking photos of them on Jackson Street Bridge and people driving by started honking their horn like oh man Walking Dead love you guys it was it was awesome that's how much these two dudes look like the dudes on the show they really do um, I've met I've met the uh, the Andy Lincoln lookalike before Cecil um, Cecil he's Cecil. a good dude he's a really good yeah. dude yeah he's a uh, he's I was at a party. Um, I was at a party with him probably a year ago um, when I was working with uh, the Walker Stalker folks, and he hopped in a photo, and people, when I came back and I was showing people the photos, they were like, he came in costume to the party? Like, they all thought it was actually Andrew Lincoln. Um, so that was pretty cool. He had he had a great story. We were, t- we were asking a little bit about it, which I'm sure he's at- answered all these questions a million times, but, like, I was asking him if... Um, if it's annoying at all, if people approach him and if it's annoying, so no, it hasn't gotten boring at all yet, but he'll tell people that no, I'm a lookalike and they'll, and they'll lean in all quietly and be like, Oh, that's, that's cool. But see, I just want you to know, I really like the work you're doing on the show, you know, and they'll leave. <laughs> and he's like, he's trying to say, I am not him. And people think that he, he's just trying to like keep a low profile. And here's what he, he, he can't do an English accent. He's from Dallas, Texas. So. It is not Andrew Lincoln, but he really does. I even found myself when I was working with him. I'm like, man, he, uh, Andrew Lincoln is being very agreeable with my direction. It's not Andrew Lincoln. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was, yep. it was, it was a lot of fun. We got a horse and everything. Uh, so, so he could walk into the city just like he did on the actual show. So it was, uh, it was an interesting day. It's the first time I've ever directed something where there was gawkers. Like we had to do crowd control. So it was, uh, so it was a fun awesome. day. Yeah, it was cool. Well, cool. Well, our listeners can look forward to hearing all of that and more next week. Uh, but until then, thank you for listening to the Atlas Podcast. My name's Emma Loggins, Editor-in-Chief with Fanbolt. Uh, my name is Kai Mickelson. I'm the Creative Director of Atlanta Movie Tours. And I have a very important question to ask you, Emma. I know you've been doing a billion things. You've been very busy and going a yes. thousand directions at once. And you've been working 15 hours on Sundays. Have you watched Angus yet? Oh, God, I knew that was going to be what you were going to ask me.
No, I haven't It's yet. okay. It's okay. I, you know, I just thought you were a fan of James Vanderbeek. Turns out I'm a bigger fan of James <laughs> Vanderbeek. But it's cool. It's good to know. Man, next week. Right. Probably, probably not next week. Give me a month. Okay. I'll watch it in the next month. I like it. That <laughs> works. Awesome. Well, it's, uh, as ever, it's great to talk to you, Emma. And we'll, uh, I'll see you on Thursday, which is tomorrow, if today is Wednesday. <laughs>